0: Berlin sports Hello and good evening and welcome to another sports cast where each and every Saturday evening, on your Saturday evening, 6 through seven o'clock, we will debate, dissect, and indeed analyze a sporting topic of your choosing, because of course, this is your show each and every single bit, as much as it is ours. And I am always super excited for this. I do appreciate it, but this is, I think, really exciting on this one, really, truly. We're looking at and delving into all time sporting records, the youngest, the fastest, the strongest sporting records are often uh, what define superstars. One of the reasons I love sporting records is because they set the bar, they recognize the standard and then that inspires the next generation or the next competitor along And that is what it's all about so yes thank you for this topic and i'm going to look forward to getting into it with you Uh, we are considering debating dissecting and analyzing some of our favorite all-time sporting records but of course we're only here until 7 p.m an hour isn't enough to get into everything so no doubt sadly there's going to be some awesome sporting records that are just going to uh fall out of our radar or really our ability to convey so Again, it's your show. Get involved. I know you've done that in your swaves, but continue to get involved. Email us to sport at com, or the quickest, the most efficient means of engaging with us in the digital era is to tweet us at Verilum Sports. What are your favorite sporting records? The fastest, the strongest, the quickest, the longest, all-time sporting records I want to hear from you. But right now, I'm delighted to hear from my good friend, the legend, the icon that is the machine, Jason McKenna. Jason, welcome back. It's been a little while. Hope you've been keeping well.
1: Yeah Tony it has been a little bit of a while I I don't know how to describe my break other than you know I think it just our plans didn't align up too much and then we had some tech issues you know the machine had to to oil up and and uh, get back into the game here but I'm so excited for this one because I too love a sporting record and to tease people my two in terms of est you know you've gone about the the biggest and the best I've got probably the winningest the fastest mm-hmm. And I would say the bestest in terms of my sporting records here. But what I would say is we've had some of the bestest choices on social media as well. People have sent in quite a few fun ones, some differing ones I wouldn't have even thought about. So one of the first ones that quite a few people sent in is the man himself, Roger Bannister, And obviously, that record has been broken subsequently. But at the time when he managed it, my goodness, it set the world alight. Then we've got Mm -hmm. Wenger unbeatables, Premier League... City Centurions in the Premier League and, of course, the Manchester United treble in terms of Europe as well as domestic success. Now, an F1 fan has said Schumacher and Hamilton and I think that's Mm. probably, you know, updated because obviously Hamilton is now neck and neck or beating Schumacher in many instances. But one of the most interesting ones that somebody sent in was John Eisner, who holds the ATP record record for the fastest ever serve in tennis, I think that was a fantastic shout for one of the greatest sporting records. Uh, Serena Williams, Andy Murray, Federer, Nadal were all mentioned, and somebody said Andy Murray has to be mentioned because he's the first Brit to win Wimbledon since Fred Perry, which is a great individual record mm-hmm. in itself. Then we've got Martin Bjorgen who had the most wins at the Winter Olympics, sometimes an overlooked kind of Olympic still in that pantheon of Olympic events. And then mm-hmm. one final one, but, you know, shouldn't be overlooked at all, is Ellie Simmons, one of the great British Paralympics. So so we've got all kinds of sports there mentioned, Tony. And I don't know if there was any favourites that you liked that people mentioned there.
0: Well, I've got to tell you, the one that leapt out at me was the Schumacher and Hamilton uh, reference there. You know, I'm sure many people listening will have heard our 100th episode podcast. Uh, if you haven't, check it out on the award-winning Radio Verland website. Just find the podcasting tab. They're easy to find. Um, but I was really lucky to speak to the voice of F1 for Sky, uh, David Crofty Croft. And obviously, we spoke about uh, Stevenage's own Lewis Hamilton. And I've got to tell you, Jason, as I mentioned this to, to Crofty, I did not think Schumacher's record would be beaten or leveled with, at least at this moment in time, in my lifetime. The nature of records, we're going to discuss it and dissect it tonight. And again, a brilliant uh, topic of choice. I really appreciate it. Keep involved. Tweeters at Veriland Sport. But uh, I, the nature of records is that they're there. They raise the bar and then are there to be beaten or matched and surpassed. And that's why we love them. But I honestly thought that that Schumacher record of seven F1 world titles would stand a long, long time. And what Hamilton has achieved in you know, a relatively short span, it's truly astonishing. And Jason, I know you're a big F1 fan, but you've uh, documented on various uh, podcasts and sportcast uh, conversations. Whilst now we look back in hindsight... And it's Dynasty um, M- 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 McLaren or uh, Mercedes, and it looks like well, what a great idea! It wasn't a, it wasn't necessarily a, a, a welcomed choice. They weren't exactly a storied, um, you know, team, were they, before he arrived? So I guess to have that foresight in a way, and to be so instrumental in the uh, organising of the team and the mechanics behind it, working really closely in tandem there is again a testimony to Hamilton's successes again check out the podcast 100th episode as well as the crafty interview you can hear from tom watts who was lofty in east end there's a big gunner as well i'm sure you may have heard that uh phil vickery has interviewed cliff crown and a whole array of other big stars uh but yeah for me jason that's maybe the one that sticks out there but again Sometimes the nature of sporting records and sporting memories is that we fixate in the most recent. So I do, again, value the Roger Bannister uh, chat, literally chariots of fire. I guess we look back now and a a four minute mile seems almost pedestrian. Well, that's because he raised that bar. He made it possible. It was literally deemed beyond the human's capability. And Roger went, "Uh -uh, I can do this. And he executed. So for me, they're the two one standouts there. But I've got to tell you, as always, fantastic involvement. Uh, again, keep involved. tweeters at Vroom Sports. But Jason, expand just quickly before you unleash your first uh, favorite or choice sporting record. Just quick thoughts for you, your pickups from that great array of um, top line uh, listener
1: involvement. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head for Hamilton. And quite often when I think about it, it gives me goosebumps on the back of my neck, thinking it's almost surreal that we are living through history. Like from this point on, whatever Hamilton does is going to be record breaking. And it's just fascinating to see that in the living flesh. You know, it's kind of like when Messi or Ronaldo get onto the pitch, yeah. they're breaking records left, right, and center. And it just, you know, humbles you as a human. You think, My God, these these guys are are honestly living through the peak. But it also brings the question of, you know, will we see a lot of these old records broken because athletes are going to be at their peak even higher because of technology and things like that but i do like the old records as well i love it when you kind of tune into a football match and you you know you see that this team hasn't beaten this team in 50 odd years and then they do it and it seems almost really kind of innocuous and really small but for for a club you know wolves this weekend obviously i'm a huge arsenal fan but it was a weird one but they hadn't beaten arsenal at uh, away in 40 years so you know at Highbury and the Emirates and it seems a long old time that we've been at both and left Highbury as well yeah it, it, it's just crazy and baffles my mind to, to think that we live through that and also I like the shout out of Martin Bjorgen you know sometimes the Winter Olympics aren't always looked at and included in that Olympic family but they definitely should be and Ellie Simmons you know what A great kind of persona in terms of British Paralympics and just showing that anybody and everybody can and should be involved in sports so I love those listener shouts as well but I'm going to move on to my first choice and you know I said we had the winningest the fastest and the bestest and first of all I'm going to go with the winningest and it Mm -hmm. is Sir Alex Ferguson's domination of the Mm -hmm. Premier League now I'm focusing just on the Premier League because some people kind of uh, Contextualise it and say, well, he didn't do too well in Europe, but um, you know, I'm looking at the Premier League because he created the modern Manchester United. So, when he joined the club uh, in the 80s, the club had not won the title since 1967. Put that into context, you know, Busby Babes, Harold Wilson was still Prime Minister, it, it's absolutely baffling. And then he moved to the 92 93. And obviously it's uh, John Major in charge. So quite a few prime ministers, you know, we're not going to talk too much about politics, but just to give context of how long Manchester United had not won a trophy. And you just think about the club now. Obviously it's been a fair few years since they've won the league, but every so often they win something. And to, to see a club of that magnitude not for nearly three decades, to lift aloft the highest honour in uh, you know, English football is absolutely baffling. But what stands out for me and what makes Sir Alex Ferguson the winningest is not just the fact that he added 13 Premier League players. Uh, titles which is obviously the most in premier league history but Mm -hmm. also the most for first division football for a single manager but what i love about him is the way he went about it because he adapted his style he -hmm. chose to rip up the template all the time and he lived through many different eras of Mm -hmm. football he lived through wenger ball he lived through mourinho ball He lived through all these different Manchester City becoming the money team in the league. You know, those noisy neighbours all of a sudden in 2008 were noisy, but had money to back up the mouth. And it's crazy to to think and again, almost humbling to to look at it, that this man was able to for so consistently long and almost the the, it was the majority of Premier League titles during his, his reign there. It's, it's baffling how he managed it, the consistency. And what I don't like as well, in it, and again why I mention it, is almost a, a revisionism, even whilst he was still there, of, well, Ferguson does it through bullying, he does it mm. through uh, angry tactics. And yes, of course, there was a psychological factor, Fergie time, things like that. But he was a master at it, and if it was that easy to bully players or command the referees to do this and that, wouldn't every other team do it? You know, if you boil down tactics to this and that, he was such a nuanced man. And what I would say as well on top of it is every player that played for him looked at him – sorry, not every player, but the, the vast majority looked at him as a father figure and still speak of him in reverend tones. You know, it was uh, – Almost kind of uh, a religious trip to go to work with Ferguson. Mm. He was he was up there with Wenger as you go there as a youth player and they develop you. So for me, Ferguson created the modern Manchester monolith that is this this huge magnificent club with this huge deep history. But he added to it. He he added that new element economically. Uh, he helped create a vast network of youth system and he pulled that club into the modern era in the Premier League era as well when it could have easily been left behind. You know, there were other clubs, Mm -hmm. arguably the Liverpool's Leeds United, for example, were the last team to win the first division title. They could have Mm -hmm. carried on their dominance. But Ferguson stood up, said no. He won that first Premier League division title and, well, the rest is history. But for me the fact that he did it in his own way and wasn't scared to change as well. You know, going from the likes of Steve Bruce at the back, who was yep. a traditional Brit, to an artisan in terms of Ferdinand. You know, he went with Michael Carrick, who wasn't the most flair midfielder, but now Bush gets at Barcelona as one of the most praised defensive midfielders because he's the Michael Carrick mould. You know, there's these players there that in their time they're, they're like the Van Goghs. They weren't appreciated until mm-hmm. much after they've left. So for me, he was a genius. And to to finish it off, I would say look at his final season. And in hindsight, it's very easy to say that that team was terrible. But in the moment, you know, you looked at Van Percy, Scholes was brought back into that side, Ashley Young, an aging Ferdinand. Uh, there were lots of players there that you thought oh, this is a really good team. Mm -hmm. And in the the context, in the moment, you thought, of Ferguson's won the the league title again. It's so easy because he's got the best players. But then you saw what Moyes had to deal with, Van Gaal after that, and you realised, actually, Ferguson went above and beyond. You know, he exceeded all kind of expectations with that squad, and it further contextualises the genius of the man. So from beginning to end, he created some of the best football, and he, he just defied all odds. And, and I'm sure this is something that you agree with, Tony. He's probably up there. I know Mourinho's your man, but Ferguson can't be far behind.
0: Instantly, I'm so pleased to see Mourinho. Top of the Premier League. Obviously, we know it's a marathon, not a sprint and all that. But, yeah, Jason, so good to have you back and really appreciate your Ferguson analysis there. I'm sure it will resonate with many. And here's the thing. Even those people, and there are those, Um, when teams get very successful, sort of have that natural animosity towards it. I'm sure even the most one-eyed Manchester United hater would have to admit they have so much respect for Sir Alex Ferguson. And that's the acid test. Um, Jason, again, so much to be said on the great Scott. Um, But just quickly, of course, in his time, Uh, 26 years at the helm at the Theatre of Dreams, claiming 38 trophies, including 13 Premier League titles. It feels like a neat segue to remind everybody to get involved with the Verum Sports Premier League Predictions League. Each and every single week, we invite you, you, you uh, punditry guru at home, get involved with us and uh, tweet at Verum Sport with your predictions each and every single Premier League weekend. It's very, very simple. If you get the correct results. maybe Man United get a late winner in, in quote-unquote Fergie time. Uh, but if you get the right scoreline prediction in any Premier League fixture all season long, chalk yourself up three points. If you get the right result, but maybe you're out by a goal or two in terms of the scoreline, give yourself one point. Now, I know this won't happen to you, but I do have to remind everybody of all the rules. If you get it wrong, and as I say, Punditry Guru, as you are, won't apply. But just in case of that anomaly, it's nothing, nothing at all. Not in this game, if you get the right, uh, the scoreline completely inaccurate. So three points if you get the scoreline bang on. One point if you get the results correct, but maybe he's out by a goal or two. And nil point if you get the result totally inaccurate. So, of course, here at Verum Sports and Sportcast, we have been uh, getting involved, as we're encouraging you to do, and it's incredibly tense, as we've already referenced, getting that famous cliche. And it is a marathon. It ain't no sprint. But at the moment, it is the returning machine, Jason McKenna, whose number crunching and data analysis has proven very strong. He leads the pack with 65 points. But it truly is everybody's game uh, in second and second equal. It's the ace man, Matthew Turby. But, uh, level on points with our own Voice of the Saints, Graham Griffin, who has uh, 63 points. Both GG and Matthew Turvey claim 63 points, just two behind the machine. Then it's me snapping at the heels, still well in contention on 62 points. Uh, Bringing up the rear at present, but still well in the game, our newest recruit. Neil Stock has 54 points. So it's totally all to play for. But I know, I know you're looking at us here with the leading uh, Jason McKenna on 65 points. And you're thinking, I'll get that in about two weeks. Uh, Yeah, I I know you can. You're a punditry guru, aren't you? Well, come on, come on. Don't just talk a good game. Show us. Tweet us each and every single week throughout the Premier League season your predictions Three points if you get the totally correct scoreline. One point if you get the right result, but maybe he's out by a goal or two. And nothing at all if you get it wrong. But yeah, that sort of uh, reminder about our fun Premier League predictions uh, aside, um, Jason. Really, want to quickly come back to Sir Alex Ferguson. Because... I think it was fantastic that you contextualised it with the Premier League because we have documented that maybe the one black mark on the great uh, knight uh, Alex Ferguson's tenure at the helm at Old Trafford is the fact that whilst he claimed two Champions Leagues, which is by no means uh, to be sniffed at, maybe it's compared to other teams Uh, around Europe, given the array of talent, and to some degree, given the dominance uh, domestically, it was a little bit of a uh, kind of, perhaps you could say, and it's rarely to be applied to Ferguson, but maybe it's an underachievement. However, what I'd like to do briefly is broaden the Sir Alex Ferguson context, actually, because he is synonymous with Old Trafford, isn't he? He is Mr. Manchester United. And even now, while she's actually not been at the helm for some time, that shadow still applies, for better or for worse. And again, that's because he was the man. But because of that, people forget about Sir Alex Ferguson that his journey didn't begin at manchester united and actually we talk about overachieving when you think Scotland, you kind of think of don't you of that one and two or pretty much all the time it's certainly been the case for many years uh celtic and rangers now with aberdeen sir alex ferguson smashed that duopoly asunder he actually won the scottish league title uh i think uh, on three occasions uh, across a, a few years. He uh, won three Scottish League championships, four Scottish Cups, and this is even more critical because we've said, haven't we, this debatable uh, black mark is the lack of European success in relative terms for Manchester United. Well, let's flip that again in Aberdeen context. If you want to talk European overachievements, he won the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup, uh, in 1983, with Aberdeen. So, that Aberdeen run before coming to Old Trafford, in relative terms, is reminiscent, I think, of the Marino. Again, can't help but go to my man, uh, the special one, uh, his time at Porto, for instance. Because, again, it's a smaller team. It's not necessarily one of those teams that you would associate with greatness, certainly not with much silverware. And it hasn't been replicated since. And that Fergie time. At the helm of uh, Aberdeen was their most successful era ever. So, managerially, I know there was a little bit of a non starter when he was at the helm of Scotland, just briefly. But if you consider his career there at the club level, Aberdeen then into that well documented uh, Theatre of Dreams experience for pushing 30 years. Well, goodness me, isn't that astonishing? So, just briefly,
1: your thoughts on the Aberdeen context. To the Sir Alex Ferguson story. Well, you have to add there as well that he had the one season with uh, St Mirren where he won the Scottish First Division as well. It's just absolutely ridiculous, you know, breaking all these kind of expectations in Scottish football. And obviously, there's the, the kind of adages that Scottish football's boring and, and this and that. But this, this was a team when Celtic was competitive. In Europe, you know the the Lisbon Lions were obviously a generation before, but they were still pushing for honours. Mm -hmm. And this was at a time when British football in general was super competitive. And so the fact that Aberdeen, uh, under Sir Alex Ferguson, as you said, was able to smash the duopoly was ridiculous. It was it, it was so out there. And three times he did it: four Scottish Cups. And what the, the European Cup winners' Cup now the UEFA Cup, it, it is so comparable to those great great stories in in footballing history. And I think the fact that he did it three times also shows his consistency, his quality, the ability yeah. to actually create a squad um, and and maybe take it apart and do it again. And he is a legend at maybe two three clubs if you if you count Saint Mirren. Uh, ridiculous kind of stuff. What I would also say, for me, the, the most amazing stat of all that comes to mind is, you know, the Scottish years combined with the, the, the Premier League years, but with the Premier League itself, right, in terms of British top flight mm-hmm. football, the next most winningest, because uh, we're going with these S's in terms yeah. of uh, these amazing individual records, the second most winningest manager in terms of English top-flight football. He has yeah. more than twice as many times winning the the top flight. I mean, that is ridiculous. 13 times he done it. Uh, it's the consistency of the man. So, yeah, I think, obviously, Man United, he made them into the biggest club in the world, mm-hmm. and that's why the focus is there. But the Aberdeen years should not be ignored at all, because what he did there was just as big as Manchester United, just as impressive, because he created a club there. Obviously, I think, because he had to leave, because obviously Scottish football is a little bit smaller, he couldn't create this amazing legacy, this this longitude at uh, Aberdeen, whereas at Manchester United, he could create the, the modern club, and they were a little bit bigger than, uh, you know, Aberdeen would ever kind of get, but... <sighs> It's just ridiculous. The mind blows, and I love reading his books as well. You know, for people out there, we're obviously talking about him tonight. We're only giving a slight ins- insight, mm-hmm. but I would recommend, you know, his biography, uh, his autobiographies and also um, another book that he did with one of his friends, um, got a, uh, Alex Ferguson with Michael Moritz. Uh, it's called Leading, and that book was an amazing insight into the brain of... Of his leadership techniques, so yeah, uh, I couldn't recommend those enough as well, Tony. Because I think that the problem is, is we look too much on the outside of actually, mm. you know, he's won these thirteen titles, two Champions Leagues, but to understand the genius of the man, of, of yeah. how he created it as well. It, in some senses, he was a people person because he knew the the dinner lady he knew the washing lady Mm -hmm. he knew everybody's name their story and he'd go out of his way and and i think this is something that people overlook when they look at his story Mm -hmm. that he knew how to manage the individual and that that's the important point he truly was a man or person manager because obviously not everybody at the club was a man but in terms of it he was a hugely influential motivator and people worked for him and, and mm-hmm. I think this is what a lot of clubs miss now is somebody that is truly leading every person there. He was the club. He was more than just uh, an individual coach. He was the manager of Manchester United and maybe mm-hmm. half or more than half of the population of the city of Manchester. You know, he will always be remembered there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, again, we could devote shows upon shows to Sir Alex Ferguson and the sheer nuances and the level of his greatness. And that word is so often over-applied, but to Ferguson, it's almost understatement. I'd love your views on uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm sure you've got many. Uh, Tweet us at Verilum Sports. Of course, every great legend needs that origin story. I don't think the Fergie um, legend or style can ever be replicated. I always use that cautionary, given the nature of uh, the, the... Change, but uh, remember, of course, whilst he again claimed those 13 Premier League titles, uh, he was under pressure, let's not forget, in the early phases of his uh, Man United career, and it was perhaps. A Mark Robbins late equaliser, really, in a semi-final against Crystal Palace way back when, uh, when Man United would go on to claim his first title, an FA Cup, uh, that then was the, uh, what started the floodgates are flowing. Uh, but without that origin, who knows what might have happened. Again, it could have been some time since, perhaps, that the Man United claimed such success. But again, please, your Man, your Man United remembrances, your Ferguson Fords, tweet us at Verum Sport, continue to keep involved. Keep involved with 92.6 FM all Saturday evening after we go off the airways at 7 p.m. There's just an hour of eclectic, diverse music in the Music Megamix 7 through 8. There will be something for all of your musical tastes there. Genres are plenty. Then, 8 through 10. It is the grooviest show on Radio Verland, One of the coolest men on Radio Verland. It's the Soul Show with Dave Ellis. Everything that you need from the world of soul, blues, and indeed R&B. It's a wonderful show. Dave Ellis is a magician at what he does. Then 10 through midnight. It is, my friend, as I refer to him, the godfather, Derek Staines who's up for your Saturday late date. Keep it 8 with 92.6 FM. Uh, Whether you're listening via the airwaves or in the comfort of your homes via your smart devices, keep involved with the award-winning Radio Verilum. But award-winning is what we are talking about tonight because we are analyzing on your Sportcast show uh, here through 7 o'clock our favourite sporting records. Now, Jason, you've used that word, a word which I stole from the Yanks, but feel as though I've popularised here in the UK, winningest. And if we're going to talk winningest, we have to consider the granddaddy of all sporting events, the Olympics, and you've got to step up and consider Michael Phelps. Love it. I mean, this guy is just... uh, We talked, Jason, you are the machine, no questions. But this guy is a machine at stacking up record after record after gold after gold after gold. It's is—it's just, we talk Ferguson, and it is astonishing. But I would argue that Phelps, on an individual level, takes that to a completely different stratosphere. So, like I say, winningest, the most successful, the most decorated Olympian all time. He has claimed across uh, Olympics, which began in two. Uh, well, he actually first started in the Olympics at 2000, where he didn't. He was only 15. Uh, but his first medals came in 2004. His last Olympic medals came in 2016. He claimed 23 golds, three silvers and two bronzes, a total of 28 Olympic medals. Again, just to give that context. The second placed uh, most winningest Olympian, if you would, is um, the Soviet Union's Larissa Latnevina, um and a, a gymnast who claimed 18 golds, uh, sorry, 18 medals total: nine golds, five silvers, and four bronzes. And that was back in the 50s, 56 through 64. So Phelps is a full 10 medals clear of the second-placed most successful Olympian all time. I mean, it's reasonably impressive. But then this, I think, takes that stat or that fact and takes it to a completely different level. Jason, take a seat for this one, because this is amazing, right? So the most successful Olympian at a single Olympics, Michael Phelps is number one, and number two, number one, the amazing 08 efforts from Beijing. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about that just in a second. Number two, from the Olympics before that, out in Athens, um, again, he claimed eight medals, but that was six gold and two bronzes, right? So he is number one and number two in the list of the most successful Olympians at a single Olympic uh, event. Again, to give it its context, remember the number one effort from Beijing, eight golds. The number two effort, the Olympics before from Athens in 2004, six golds and two bronzes. The third uh, most successful Olympian from a single Olympic Games happened back in the 80s, the 1980 Moscow Games. It was a gymnast um, called Alexandra Dityatin who claimed just three golds. Four silvers and a bronze. I mean, no mean effort, the third most decorated Olympian from a singular event. But his three golds seems rather meagre to the sixth that Michael Phelps claimed in Athens. And then this staggering eight from Beijing. Oh, by the way, Michael Phelps also features in this list uh, number 15 and number 16, in the all-time list of most successful Olympians from a single game, uh, from his efforts uh, in the um, 2012 London Games and his efforts from Rio, his final Olympics uh, back in 2016, are uh, 15th and 16th. So, in the top 16 most successful individual Olympics efforts in, a, in one-off games, Michael Phelps features four times. And it's position number one and number two. I'm just going to let those kind of sink in because I'm aware of them. I've, I've processed this. I've kind of analysed this. And just reading that, I'm personally a little staggered because it's just uh, we talk dominance. We talk winningist, And it just is that to a different world, a different realm. And again, we're not talking sort of, you know, uh, a little event here this is the olympics he is mr olympics i think quite frankly and you know what an effort that is right across a career uh, considering olympics world championship pan pacific games he, c- he claimed a ridiculous haul of 83 medals michael phelps the baltimore bullet the flying fish call him what you want he is just an absolute magician at what he did and peerless in the pool um so yeah he's uh uh yeah that, he was born in 1985 and um again his Hall of 28 olympic medals remains unsurpassed i don't know i've said it before i didn't think uh Hamilton's record would be beat, uh schumacher's record would be surpassed but i think that record of 28 is going to take one hell of a beating. I think it's going to stand for some time. Um, that effort of eight golds from Beijing in 2008 uh, actually broke his icon, who is a kind of precursor, the legendary American swimmer Mark Spitz's 1972 effort for, of seven golds from the Munich Games, uh, which is fairly astonishing. He was 2008 Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year, and he still holds two world records. Uh, Individually, his time of 4 minutes, 3 seconds and 84 microseconds from the Beijing Games in the 400 metre individual medley remains a world record. He also remains a world record holder with the USA team, again from those Halcyon um, Games of 08, where he really was at the peak of his powers. That team still hold the record for the 4 by 100 metre freestyle in a time of 3 minutes, 8 seconds, and 24. So it really is, you know, quite astonishing that even after these years, some four years of retirement, he still remains unsurpassed in the record terms, as well as, I think, perhaps maybe becoming unsurpassable in terms of the hall of medals that he achieved. As I mentioned, his first games were back in Sydney in 2000, so fully 20 years ago. He was only 15 at the time. We're talking winning Airstone, sporting records. Well, it's another one he could uh, put in the locker. He was the youngest male since Ralph Flanagan, way back in 1932, to make the US Olympic swim team. Again, no medals for him in that tournament uh, or that Olympics. He did finish fifth in the 200-meter Butterfly, and Butterfly was probably his strongest event. But To be at the Olympics at just 15 really was just a demonstration of what was to come from the great man. Again, his efforts in 2004 were astonishing back in Athens, uh, where he'd win golds at uh, 100-meter butterfly, 200-meter butterfly, the 200-meter medley. Golds also in relays at 200-meter freestyle and 400-meter relay um, and also 200-meter freestyle. Uh, sorry, bronze is at 200-meter freestyle and bronze in the 100-meter freestyle relay. So, cumulatively, eight medals and six golds. Freestyle was not his strongest event, actually, and he'd come third, bronze medal, between, behind two other swimming legends in Ian Thorpe, the Australian, and Holland's uh, Pieter van Hugenbeard. But I think he demonstrated a real champion attitude in defeat or if you would if bronze could be con- considered defeated he says how can i be disappointed i swam in a field with the two fastest freestylers of all time now i mentioned one of the icons there ian thorpe uh, of course he looked up to mark spitz who his record he surpassed in the 2008 olympics but he really modeled himself on the aussie ian thorpe and um, this is again another kind of insight into the psychology of the successful man and it could be a lesson to us all. Thorpe as I say his inspiration went on record as saying that there's no way that he would be able to claim eight golds at the 2008 Olympics. Now um, Phelps would actually take those words print them out and he put them on his locker at the beijing <laughs> games so literally <laughs> this guy who's inspired him this say this naysaying ian thorpe every time he goes into the pool just before getting changed he has those words you say i can't do this i'll show you something different michael Phelps literally did i mean that was an amazing event for him he, he beat spitz's record of seven goals as i've already said and again A measure of the man. I would like people to listen to this direct quote, because this isn't Tony Rice pontificating. This is right from the words of the greatest Olympian of all time. No debate about it. He said, records are always made to be broken, no matter what they are. Now, listen close to Michael Phelps, because this is so important. He goes on to say, anybody can do anything that they set their mind Two, not me just uh giving you jive michael phelps the most winningest olympian all time reminding us of indeed what the human can do indeed when they set their mind to a goal perhaps needing that motivation from a hero saying no you cannot well yes he did love it Moving on then to the 2012 Olympics, London's own. Of course, we've discussed that over many occasions. So many great London 2012 memories. And again, this is your show. We're talking all-time great sporting records. Many were broken at the Olympics at London. I'm sure maybe many of you were there. I'd love to hear from you, your London 2012 recollections. Do get involved. (laughs) Tweet us at Sport. At the London Games, he would claim gold at the 100-meter fly, the 200-meter medley, the 200-meter freestyle relay, the 100-meter medley, uh, and silver at the 200-meter fly and the 100-meter freestyle relay. After the games, he, and I put it in inverted commas, retired, but he did sound rather adamant, saying, I'm done, I'm retired, I'm done, no more. However, he would then go on to make a comeback in 2014, uh, proving that even great men sometimes go back on their word. Uh, But 2016, the law of Rio was too much. And he got himself back into the pool in 2014 and was back at the Olympic level by 2016 for his final games out in Rio, where he was honored by being the USA flag bearer. He would win golds: 200 meter fly, 200 meter medley, 100 meter freestyle relay, 200 meter freestyle relay, uh, the 100 meter medley relay, and a silver in the 100 meter fly. It's just a medal haul beyond compare. He was trained throughout his career, and what has done since the age of eleven by the legendary Bob Bowman. Now, as all great stories have. It isn't just easy running. Naturally, he's worked remarkably hard, putting hours and hours upon hours in the pool, honing his body, showing the discipline that is necessary to be any kind of Olympian, least of all the winningest. But also, he's battled very openly with ADHD and depression his whole life and widely widely claimed and believed that he was actually contemplating suicide after that uh, announcement of his retirement after London 2012. Um, He has had legal issues. Back in 2004, there was a driving under the influence um, charge, which was repeated actually in 2014. Uh, Controversy followed also, where he was photographed uh, indulging, shall we say, in a bong. Uh, That image went viral. And it actually caused Kellogg's, one of his principal sponsors, to drop him from their kind of roster of uh, sponsors and partners. And it also triggered a three-month suspension by USA Swimming. But these indiscretions aside, again, the array of medals, the hall of records, the winning attitude sets him aside. And it's not just that either. It would be enough for a conversation about all-time sporting records, But there is something just a little bit extra special about this extra special Olympian. He founded the Michael Phelps Foundation uh, back in 2014, which is focusing on growing the sport of swimming, but also more broadly, uh, promoting a healthier lifestyle, uh, not just in America, but across the world. And again, reminding everybody that he has openly battled with ADHD and depression his whole life in 2017. He joined the board of Medibio and this company is focused in on the diagnosis of mental health issues and disorders. So just again as well as being a sports star unique the most successful Olympian all time he's also a mighty fine human being in his own right. So for all those reasons Michael Phelps I salute you. Jason Um, again remember to everybody that uh, we are running into the last five minutes or so on tonight's sportcast. but there's going to be more where this comes from we're podcasting up in full and we've got a few more favorite records to analyze coming up but just now as we enter into the final five minutes or so of tonight your michael phelps thoughts memories or recollections
1: yeah i love the the shout of michael phelps because you know he is the face of mr olympics and and what you said there as well off the field he's he's humanized that you know uh, a lot of with uh, some sports is this kind of ultra macho image but he's shown a vulnerability of a champion you know champions can have these these issues as well which i think is so so important that it opens out discussions especially with male mental health you know the fact that uh, suicide is the biggest killer of you know under 45s in this country is is an important topic and you know, bless Michael Phelps for talking about that. But talking about the sports, you know, I, I don't want to get too, too, you know, glum and and uh, everything. I, I want to keep it happy at the moment because, as well, you can say that this is a an early Christmas cracker an early Christmas gift because we have entered the festive month here, and, and you know, it always feels like a gift chatting here about sports on verulam Sport. But you know, for me, the biggest standout, and it, it's that 2008. Olympics that you reference there I'm just going to talk you through it 200 meters freestyle world record 200 meters butterfly world record 200 meters medley world record you, you get you get my drift here ridiculous ridiculous not only did he win gold in every event that he entered uh, apart from one they were all world records one of them, you know, just was an Olympic record. You know, no biggie with, with that one, but it just. How oh, dare st- you, Michael? How you you take a good hard look look in the mirror? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the audacity to to only you know have one Olympic record there. They're just disgraceful, disgraceful. No, but in all seriousness, not only did he win with world records in every one he, he he just did it in his own style and that yeah. kind of two fingers up to adversity there of you know one of the legends of the sport you know saying no you can't well yes i can yes i can do um what i want in in terms of it because realistically you know i love it gave me tingles up my spine then when you said you know as a human if you set your mind to it, you can do what you want, and Phelps has proven that, and especially his story afterwards, with the face of, uh, the you know, the adversity that he had faced, mm-hmm. and the fact as well that he came back, I loved the story, and it, I was a bit worried, you know, with London 2012, I thought, fantastic send-off, what a great guy, um, and, he, you know, he, he was going to spend more time with his family, but... He said he'd done his finish no more and he didn't want anything to do with the sport. And fair enough, you know, he'd done everything that anybody could want. And quite often, you know, when people retire and leave a sport and then they come back sometimes it can ruin a legacy or, or when they return they're not as good you know I don't want to insult Michael Schumacher but when he returned mm-hmm. he wasn't the same um, Paul Scholes maybe wasn't the same player that when he left Manchester United a lot of these people they they retire for a reason because they're not as good as they once were but Phelps retired at the top he was still as good as he ever was and then he showed that two mm-hmm. years later after coming back And then four years after his proper, you know, retirement, he comes back to the Olympics and, you know, he blows everybody literally out of the water again. One silver, but the rest all golds. I mean, needless to say, uh, this was a truly magnificent comeback on par with probably, you know, Ali in terms of regaining Mm -hmm. his titles. You know, Ali didn't retire in, in a sense, but he did regain his titles in the face of adversity. That is truly astonishing. That that is an amazing, amazing story. So, for me, I love the pick of Michael Phelps. Everything about it, everything about him, I I think should be celebrated. You know, there were those elements that you said off the field, but I think that adds to his character because he's a real human, and and Absolutely. nobody is is blameless, and uh, you know, he's made mistakes. But he's he's owned them. And also the low of, you know, his first retirement, the fact that he, he bounced back. My God, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's a true not just Olympian, not just a sport, but a human endeavor story that should inspire anybody and everybody.
0: Um, before I invite you, Jason, to give us your next choice, I want to remind everybody that sporting records are often the barometer of glory. That's kind of why we like them. That's why we love them. Again, they set that, that bar, that standard, that, uh, that goal to achieve. But the yin to the yang, it has to be said that certain sporting records kind of fill you not with glory, but ignominy. And I want to give a shout out, I really do, to the um, American Samoan football team who hold the record, if you would, of the biggest defeat in a uh, football um, competition or uh, I think it was qualifying for the World Cup or pre-qualifying for the World Cup. They lost across 90 minutes to Australia by 33 goals to nil. A uh, tough day that was, of course, for them. Uh, again, sporting records also often are about glory, but there are the flip sides of that. Do you have your thoughts when it comes to uh, records of sports, which may be a little bit... Uh, not necessarily ones that you want to crow about. If you do, if you've got memories of battle thoughts on it, love to hear from you. Tweet us at Verum Sports. Jason, just wondering if you've got any sporting records that you can think of that are in that kind of inglorious category before we flip it back and always reminding people we're pint-half-full
1: gentlemen, and we focus in again on the glory of sporting records. I mean... One of the big ones that stands out for me is an inglorious one, but for Manchester United fans, obviously this will be a big one, is Arsenal were going for the 50 games unbeaten. But they went to Old Trafford, and of course it would be the Red Devils. Of course it would be Ferguson against Arsene Wenger. And he beat us 49-49 undefeated, but we couldn't get to that 50 mark. And who knows what would have happened, you know? That was the the season after the amazing work of the Invincibles. And the question would have been, you know, could they have continued? Could it have been two seasons? Because up to that point, Arsenal were just, you know, trampling all over other opponents. They'd got to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Maybe they could have Mm. gone further that season because the season after they got to the final. But it was a huge psychological blow. So that is a very kind of... Horrible record. I mean, the other one is most own goals in terms of yeah. uh, the Premier League, and that goes to Richard Dunn. 10 own goals, uh, and that was with different clubs as well. So he won't be liked by Manchester. City, Everton, Aston Villa and QPR fans because he scored own goals in all those sides. But I think Richard Dunn, you know, he, ge- he gets a bit of credit as well because he's he's a bit of a Indeed. legend. Most red cards uh, in the Premier League, you know, another one of those records. Um, I can't remember off the top of the head who that one goes to. But as well, Jamie Carragher, he scored more own goals than goals for Liverpool. So another yeah. unwanted Record, so it you know there are some fun ones that you kind of think about um well, actually, moving it back to Richard Dunn, I just remembered Richard Dunn is the one with the most red cards in the Premier League as well, so he 's got most own goals, most red cards. maybe richard dunn is is kind of the antithesis of what we 're talking about tonight of most unwanted records all time in terms of Premier League, so yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had with with those ones. You know, we do it tongue in cheek because we we got nothing against Richard Dunn there. But uh, I suppose should we move it on to my next? Absolutely, one, Tony? absolutely.
0: Because like I say, I just wanted to give the the 360 of sporting records. <laughs> that. I'm sure there are others. Uh, but, yes, get involved. tweet us at random sports, uh both inglorious records, but come on let 's bang that for half fall be positive people, be positive and give us your favorite sporting records, as Jason is now going to elaborate on another of his own favorite glorious sporting records
1: so as I said there i 've got the winningest, although you know you kind of trump me with the most winningest Olympian, but for me, the next one is definitely the fastest. And uh, as well, you know, being the fastest human alive also comes with being the bestest human alive. So, you know, that shows how I value people, not on the value of their character, but how fast you are. So (laughs) but in terms of it, you know, uh, joking aside, this guy was one of my idols growing up. And When he did it at the 2008 Olympics, he, he just blew my mind because of the fashion he did it. Of course, I'm talking about the Jamaican legend. Usain Bolt and for me this is an opportunity to wax lyrical about one of my personal heroes um, you know I just love the guy I used to have all his posters up in my room at yeah. university people you know would laugh sometimes about how much I love Usain Bolt but I thought he you know maybe he wasn't a great example because of his sometimes lax attitude but in terms of it he was just a freak, a proper positive freak of nature, because he was blessed in every asset. And the question is, you know, we'll move on to it a little bit later, but maybe he could have done more because of his relaxed attitude. But the fact that he achieved so much with his Maverick way is in of itself brilliant. And, you know, talking about the records, again, he's got the world records for, you know, the the world championships. But I want to focus really on the Olympics because that's the creme de la creme of sports, you know. That's what you did with Michael Phelps. I'm going to do the same with Usain Bolt because in terms of athletics, he just destroyed, he ripped up the scene. Nobody could hold a, a candle to him in the three Olympics that he mm. competed at. And nine times Olympic gold medalist. And I'm including all the medals that he won because obviously there was one that was struck off with the relay team Mm -hmm. afterwards but for me he still won that and taking records away because a teammate got struck off years later just seems empty you know taking it away from lance armstrong those years later yes obviously lance armstrong did bad but what's the point in taking it away like 10 years later he won it then and uh, unfortunately he won it in bad circumstances but the asterisk for me does not devalue what usain bolt did and Mm -hmm. he he won 100 meter 200 meter and obviously the four times 100 meter relays all for jamaica and you know for such a small nation there he got so many damn medals and all the records at the time the 2008 Olympics were the ones that really stood out for me, and there was there was so much excitement. Like again, as I said, I was growing up watching this, and I was fascinated because Beijing was was so different and and such a, a weird kind of Olympics in this foreign country with these beautiful stadiums and some mm-hmm. really kind of amazing art architecture on display. And then there was this maverick Jamaican runner that. You know, there'd been some, like, discussions about him, but nobody realised what a treat it was. And when he set up for that 100-metre final, nobody knew what was about to happen. First of all, he won it in a world record time of 9.69 seconds, and this was without a favourable backwind. It was no Mm -hmm. wind at all, actually. But what was even more amazing, and this is something that you pointed out yourself many times, Tony, is he slowed down to cross yeah. the line. The, the meme, the joke, was Usain Bolt celebrates early. Like, he, he, he did that. But then to add to this mythology of Usain Bolt, was his shoelace was untied. Yes. And before before he even did the race... He didn't, you know, go on some mad diet of, you know, special shakes and and energy drinks. What did you eat, Usain, before the final of the biggest event of your life? Chicken nuggets. I mean, (laughs) you couldn't write this. This is... This is ridiculousness. If you if you did write that, people would laugh at you. You've given the example of of kind of Sly Stallone with with some amazing boxing kind of situations with Muhammad Ali. You know, no, no, that that wouldn't happen. That's unrealistic. Nobody would have thought that a person with untied shoelaces, just eaten chicken nuggets, yeah. would celebrate early, would smash the world record. Now, and I suppose I throw it to you, Tony. It does obviously embellish the story. It does make Mm -hmm. it so, so amazing. But do you also, at the back of your mind, um, have like a little regret almost on behalf of Usain Bolt that he didn't wait and celebrate a little bit just one second later and then who knows what time we could have seen. Could we have seen a 9.5, a 9.4 in terms of the 100-meter record? I mean, what is your quick thoughts on that?
0: Jason, it's such a good question, okay? And I really love that Usain Bolt is in this topic, and I think he eminently deserves it. I want to frame this. I don't want to be misconstrued here. I have such admiration and just, you know, the word awesome, isn't it? It's thrown around like confetti. But I was awed watching this guy at work. It's freakish in the most glorious possible sense of the word. And, you know, world records, eight Olympic medals, 11 world championships. I mean, goodness me, it's a stellar career. Now, I framed it. Okay. You say, Bolt, finish the job. I tell you, because uh the thing is about records, this is the thing that we love. And, again, he's, he, he, he obliterated the record. But I honestly believe, okay, that he had the ability – to do a nine-second 100 meters, and let's not forget, again, he also is world record holder across 200 meters, and again had that uh, slowing moment, and I think that's now been beaten by a South African. I um, know the South Africans across four bullets is still 200 record holder, uh, but the point I'm making is it's an amazing career; you simply cannot fault it. But like the Roger Bannister record that we've referenced. That was seminal, seminal, because it was one of those that people thought could not be done by a human, a four-minute mile. And it seems almost really weird to say that now, given the array of records and how far that bar has been raised. Now, Usain Bolt smashed a bar, but I think he could have taken it to another paradigm. And I genuinely believe if you look at the, the pictures and again, I think sometimes we all need to, particularly when you're at this level, create our own mythos. So as to whether indeed the story about the chicken nuggets is 100 percent accurate is moot. Uh, I can well believe it. What is beyond dispute is the fact you're dead right. His laces were certainly uh, not fully tied. And what is clear for the world to see As wonderful as that was, he slowed up. Plus also, one of the things genetically about Usain Bolt was his giant stature, a giant of a man in every sense of the word. But from uh, biochemistry and a kind of physiological point of view, he broke the mold of what a traditional 100 meter specialist should be. Usually a little bit squatter uh, and kind of a little bit more kind of... uh, I guess, rapid fashion in terms of uh, leg movements. He was all stride, okay, gazelle-like. And But accordingly, whilst he mastered that kind of and broke the book, and we love that, um, never great starter. And I just feel as though if he had focused in, because uh, the people that do kind of, you know, really, really sort of fixate on being the absolute best, they take into account these little one percenters. I guess Usain Bolt was so far ahead that he, of his um, peers that he had the luxury of kind of you know chilling out, for want of a better phrase, in a Olympic and a World Championship context before the finish line. But all I'm simply stating, right, is that if his mindset had been di- just just moderately different, right. And had focused in on these aspects. number one, for goodness sake, finish, celebrate at the end, finish when you're finished. right? We're talking that alone could knock off hundreds of a second. <laughs> right? And at this this level, at this kind of speed, they're vital hundreds of a second. It sounds ridiculous, but it may it's in context, in relative terms. A huge amount. OK? So that's number one. Number two: focus in on this deficit of the start and then combine that with your natural gifts and apply it to that one I've already referenced of just finishing. And I honestly (laughs) believe that it's not um, hyperbolic to say that if and only if all of those combinations were applied, Usain Bolt could have, I'm going to say accordingly, just for an opinion, by a mere mortal, not a true athletic god. but this mere mortal's opinion is that Usain Bolt should have uh, smashed into the sub uh, nine-second level, okay? And much like that Bannister moment, that would have been seminal because you go to a totally different planet, right? And this is what I love about records, and goodness me, Bolt is, no questions about it. You've referenced it. A record breaker. Who is little old me to critique? But to go to another level where I believe he had the gift to get to, which is to go from world record baker, uh poster boy, to you know, that individual whose efforts alone take the human to a different level of thinking and a sub nine second hundred meters would do just that. And I passionately believe that Bolt had that in him. So I'm not taking away from his records. I will not be misconstrued and said I'm anti Bolt or thinking, you know, taking away from all his great successes. No way, no way, Jose. I salute the man. I give it a special Usain Bolt salute because just big up (laughs) respect. I simply believe that he was capable of moving things to a paradigm-changing level. And I'd love that to have been the case. I'd love to have witnessed that. So that's my take, Jason. Am I mean, I'm, I'm being too harsh?
1: I don't think you're being too harsh because almost you did feel that. You wanted him to push that little bit for, you know, because you knew he could reach that. And to be fair, you know, I absolutely love the man. I revere him myself. He's one of my all-time favourites in terms of sport in general. But I would, I would agree with you to an extent because I've watched many documentaries, many kind of runner's analysis, and he wasn't the perfect form runner. As you said, he, he was a, a bit of a maverick, a, a bit of a, a strange one in terms of his own unique running style. So in terms of it, he could have perfected his start. He he was always slow off the run. And in many ways, I almost think that Bolt liked it because it was almost like the chase. Like, yeah, I'll yeah. let them, I'll let them get ahead of me, make them think that they can win and then finish them off. And imagine imagine if he just perfected those starts smooth running yeah. throughout what we could have seen uh, and i think there was sometimes i i don't want to again i love the man but there was almost because he was so far ahead he didn't need to do that he yeah he didn't need to focus whereas other people like phelps were almost robotic like which again in of itself is so praiseworthy and so amazing yeah. Bolt was was always going to be Bolt. He did things his own way. He was more like Cantona, Maradona, you know, living uh, their sport by their own rules, whereas Phelps is more kind of of the school of maybe David Beckham, where they just crafted and became Mm. pure artisans of their sport, worked on those minutiae, found every little bit of difference. And, you Mm -hmm. know, bless Bolt, he was... He was freakishly talented, but there is always that that question. But let's move it on, because like you said, 200 metres at 2008, he got the record again. And this was mind-blowing stuff, because he was literally the fastest man on the planet. And I remember kind of after the fallout of this, you'd see TV presenters, uh, he'd go on loads of shows, and people from the crowd would would try and sprint against him, And, and you'd see, you know... Uh, Johnny McGee from down the road trying to take on Usain Bolt. He'd be sprinting his heart out. Usain would give about 50%, 100% just for the last few metres. Nobody Mm -hmm. could touch him. Until 2012. And this was the turning point. And this, again, you know, I was a huge Bolt fan at this point. But I was a little bit worried because at the start of the 2012 Mm -hmm. season, going into that London Home Olympics... And it worried me because obviously it was on home soil. I wanted to see Usain lift it at London. I wanted it because he said that London was his his second home. He was so excited. And a lot as well was it was uh, the 50th anniversary of Jamaica's independence from the United Kingdom. So there was a lot of, again, mythology that there was, you know, like his name. He was Bolt. That There was so much about him that was almost written in the stars. And so, at the start of the season, he actually was defeated by um, by Johan Blake. And uh, th- this was crazy. You know, I didn't think that he'd lose to anybody. And then Johan Blake was pitted against him in this Olympics. And I was genuinely worried because I thought, at the start of the season... In the 200 meters and the 100 meters, yeah. this younger rival as well. So this could have been bolt mark too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- th- this was crazy. But he set up in the final. Once again, mm-hmm. he smashed it. He beat Johann Blake and he, he duplicated everything that he did at the Beijing Olympics. Blake yeah. was, um, you know, a few milliseconds off with 9.75, whereas... Uh, Bolt got the 9.63, but at this point, you know, he'd done the double-triple. He, he'd he cemented himself basically as an Olympic legend in his mm-hmm. own right, maybe a sporting legend in that sense. And this was, you know, he, he was on top of the world, and he'd done it all. He was aiming for another Olympics, but again, in 2014, as a Bolt fan, mm-hmm. I was worried because he had a huge injury. And the problem with sprinters, you know, with with any sort of these kind yeah. of, it happens with footballers as well because it's um, a fast muscle reflex sport. You know, mm-hmm. y- you're you're very susceptible to uh, calf um, hamstring injuries, and once you get one injury like that, it yeah. can be a career ender because it it makes your incidence to injury so so high, and because he's going to be that's the only thing he does sprinting. A hamstring injury like that, my God, you know, I was, you know, at a young age, I still understood, you know, I was into my sports data mm-hmm. from a young age and I got, I was very worried, you know, you had Justin Gatlin, you had your Blake breathing yeah. down his neck and he had to have surgery as well. So I was, I was genuinely worried for the Rio Olympics as well, but he made his, uh, his comeback, you know, he, he wanted to, to make the 2016 his last olympics he wanted 2017 world athletics championship to mm-hmm. be his last uh, event so we we knew that the bolt timer was running out as well which again was sad but at least in set a timer we knew how long and at this time 2015 he was posting 10 second 100 meters runs i thought mm-hmm. god that it, it's run out for usain bolt but he lifted world championships again. You know, he won the 100 metres. He, he won the 200 metres. And actually, the only time that he actually lost out in, in terms of uh, a world championship race was in 2011. And this was the the interesting rules, the new laws, that if you made one false start, you were removed from a sprint, yeah. which I thought was absolutely re- ridiculous at the time, but maybe we can discuss that another time. But that was the only time... Even with all this hardship, that was the only time he lost out a world championship or Olympic final in terms of not winning it. It, it just mm-hmm. the sheer dominance, even in the face of all this. And then at 2016, he, you know, we've gone from the the beginning of the legend in 2008, creating the Bolt mythology. 2012, mm-hmm. cementing it. He is at the top of the game. And in 2016 was the best possible finish ever. You know, when you write stories like this in sport, Mm -hmm. you could have no better ending. He, you know, he competed sparingly because of his previous injury. Again, he himself had his worries. He, He had a few little sprints here and there. And he was at the London Grand Prix, which is, again, another opportunity to see him in London. Uh, So that was a great thing for for me personally. I I loved, you know, having the opportunity (laughs) to see Bolt. So there's obviously, with this story, my own kind of personal experiences. But he had four races of 100 metres to build up to the Olympics. He had a few 200 metres races as well. Mm -hmm. But going into this, you know, a lot of people were questioning him because of his injury, because... You know, would he be able to compete at this third Olympics? He was getting a little bit older now. But questions were answered. 9.81 seconds in the 100 metres. You know, it does beg the question of what he would have done if he'd raced to the final of the Beijing Olympics. He was obviously getting a bit slower as he got older, but he was still picking up the Olympic titles. Mm -hmm. And with the wins at 2012... He got the triple-triple. It was yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. And that will go down as the first person to get the triple-triple. 100% records in Olympic finals. I mean, the man was... He, he's a myth. He's a living legend. And Absolutely. what he said after it as well, you know, in the final, after he'd done it, he said, I want to be among the greats of Muhammad Ali in Pelé i think he is you know as as the fastest man as the fastest olympian with the triple triple you know Mm -hmm. he wasn't as political as ali maybe he he didn't you know have uh, this kind of amazing element that pelé did of transcending sports but pelé was so neutral but he's a maverick Mm -hmm. in his own right like ali yeah he was a record breaker like pelé and I mm-hmm. think it's right to put him up there. You know, the individual records are there in terms of athletics. But in terms of sports itself, he is the best ever. And in 2017, it, it broke my heart that in his final ever World Championship final, he pulled up with 50 metres to go with the injury. But that didn't ruin his, his legacy. He he still was the best ever and yes, he did bow out with a whimper rather than bang, you know, like the old poem goes, you know, this is how the world ends. And that that was how the world said goodbye to Usain Bolt. But he'd mm. already said goodbye at the 2016 Olympics, the World Championships. No insult to them. Obviously, they are the World Championships. But the Olympics is where people kind of remember. And he'd done yeah. it. He'd had the treble treble. And nobody will ever, ever forget that. You'll never take that away. And, I mean, would you agree with his own quote there? It's obviously not modest, it's not humble to say, I'm up there with Ali and Pelé, that he wanted to be amongst them.
0: Jason, you know what? I love it. I absolutely really appreciate this analysis. And, again, I want to categorically state on record that I have such admiration, uh, and I'm awed, I'm in awe of Usain Bolt. And similarly to Ali, sometimes when these greats speak the truth, It might sound arrogant, but because they've lived it, it isn't actually arrogant at all. You know, it's not arrogant to say one plus one is two. You know, it's just a simple fact. And, you know, we did a great podcast a little while back on our um, Mount Rushmore of sports. And Usain Bolt deserves to live on that Mount Rushmore in the same way that Pelle does and Ali does. And what I mean by that is, Again, earlier tonight, I've already analysed the winningest Olympian, Michael Phelps, who also has an inspiring story, as I'm sure you've heard. But the difference is, whilst he was a, a superstar, right? Maybe because it's different sports, you know, swimming is necessarily or because he's going to kind of hit the zeitgeist in the same way that the fastest man on earth is, for instance, right? I get that, but the thing is, Bolt cuts through and connects with planet Earth in a way that Michael Phelps simply isn't. Uh, And that's no disrespect to Phelps. But, you know, Bolt is, um, you know, on that very, very rarefied level uh, of sports stars uh, who are transcendent. And, you know, there's no questions about that. And I certainly, certainly put him in that category. And I don't think it's arrogant. I think it is just quite a fair comparison. And I don't think many would debate that with you. Here's a fact, Jason. I'm not sure you're aware of this, but I think it's crucial, actually. Right. Of the 30 fastest 100 meters ever recorded all time. Okay. Nine of them were achieved by a quote-unquote clean athlete i shouldn't really put that in inverted commas what we mean by that is an athlete who hasn't been found to have been um abusing uh banned substances okay 21 of the 30 fastest 100 meters ever recorded have been proven to be have been achieved and that deserves in inverted commas by athletes who have been enhancing their performance qualities by dint of taking banned substances, right? Leaving nine belonging to one man, your man, Mr. Bolds. So, I mean, nine of the 30th fastest done clean, <laughs> all the other 21, you know, as to whether we eradicate from the, the record, but put asterisks by them, it's irrelevant. Uh, but the nine clean, and of course the three main records uh bolts i think that's a wonderful kind of uh summation of his qualities really
1: yeah it's it's mind blowing and i, I think i had heard a similar statistic or, or one of them but you know just hearing it every time just reminds you of the magnificence of the man and he he was drug tested so many times so stringently that i don't think that he cheated i i I'd, I'd honestly be distraught if I found out that he was but there's no kind of inkling of that and I think I would also say I don't think he was a drug cheat because we we've kind of both analyzed tonight that physically he probably could have done more you know that there was that limit there that Usain Bolt almost limited himself he he kind of yeah. celebrated too early so you know he th- th- for me there's no question that who's drugs testing because he didn't even find his own physical limit when he was racing. He didn't need drugs to do that. He his physical frame, his body was yeah. both radical in terms of its, you know, weirdness in terms of sprinting, but it was also perfectly built for that. Yes, his running style wasn't perfect. Yes, he he didn't sprint off the block quick enough, but everything else about him was perfect and intertwined and but once
0: again jason we're talking technique here and again i know i've had my tuppence about him kind of focusing on perhaps on the start certainly the finish right um, <laughs> but again just to put him into the stratosphere where he belongs many many people have heard me many many times in previous podcasts I, um, eulogize about who the man who for me just personal opinion, remains the greatest mr muhammad ali right but Muhammad Ali, his technique was so unusual. Uh, it was freakish accordingly. And it's that sort of similar thing. And what I think is brilliant is that they had the strength of character and also surrounded themselves with the kind of coaches who recognised, well, I could do one or two things here. I could be really kind of brutal and kind of force them into the norm. Or I can appreciate that this complete anomaly is a bona fide a genius, a <laughs> gift from the gods, from a coaching perspective, and just do your thing. And I think, again, that comparison there means that, once again, it's, it, we're not reaching at straws here. There are so many, whilst they're such divergent characters, like connected points to the greatest still for my money, Ali, and Usain Bolt. So yeah, just quickly there, your thoughts on that relationship, generations apart, different sports entirely, that seems to be intertwined between these two iconic human beings.
1: Yeah, I 100% think it's a fair comparison because Usain did it in his own way, Muhammad Ali. And I think this is the thing sometimes with, with sport or with anything, you know, it takes a revolutionary whether they're conscious of it or not because I think a lot of what Bolt did was natural a lot of what Ali did was just natural to them but you need somebody like that to show that there is more than one way there is more than just the Mm -hmm. textbook way and that it's because they are both legends of the sport as well doing it their own way in the maverick way the different way it's such a good example you know bringing it back to your point about phelps of a lot of people probably said to you saying oh you might not make it because your technique isn't right they probably said it to ali that you know you need to to bob and weave and do this and do that in those situations and both of those individuals said no i'm going to do it my own way and like phelps said you know if you want it enough you can do it ali did it bolt did it and i think this is a story that You know, sometimes there are rules and regulations that you have to kind of comply to just to enter. But then if you can find a more efficient, different way to do it in your own way, you're going to confuse opponents. But you're also possibly going to show people that, yes, there is more than one way. And, And I love that story. I love that comparison because outside of the box thinking is what sometimes creates some of the best anomalies that then become normalities or that people try and emulate, because I don't know if people can emulate what Bolt did, you know, they have orthodox running styles for a reason, because that Mm -hmm. is the most efficient way for 99% of sprinters, but then there's that 1% of sprinter called Usain Bolt that can go, don't need to run that way, because I'm just so gifted, and yeah, I, do, I, I love that kind of comparison there, Tony. I think it, it's a brilliant way, and I think it it probably segues nicely into your final one because we've 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 had some great discussions here tonight. I've I've put in maybe a few anecdotes and great memories to mine as well. You've you've had some, you know, waxing lyrical about Michael Phelps there, but I'm I'm fascinated to know who your final one is. Yeah, I'm
0: going to come to that. I'm just going to have a final word on uh, Mr. Bolt. Uh, and well, not really a final personal thought, but just really to encourage everybody to have their views in on Usain, because you know, again, we have eulogised about him quite rightly, uh, and as I say, I put him in the stratosphere, rarefied as it is, for is Pele, Ali, um, you know, um, Tiger Woods, that kind of Mount Rushmore of sport, really. But love your bold views, get them to us, tweet us at Verum Sport, and I really would love your views on this because i still believe it despite you know thinking the man is immense despite appreciating that he is in you know um reverent terms on a similar par level on a sort of plane if you would the same planet as the greatest for me muhammad ali um i still believe that usain bolt could have moved things to an even different level maybe then surpassing to become the greatest again it's all subjective but i would love your subjective opinions on usain bolt could he have done more could he have set more records could he have got that mythical nine second sub nine second hundred meters i truly believe he could have For you or am i being naive there get involved tweet us at verilum sport remember this is your show, every single bit as much as it is ours. Now, Jason, um, one thing we love to do here, uh, as well as enjoying chatting about records, is that we love to shine a light on the power of sport to unite. And uh, again, just by the way it has rolled, large focus has been on the um, the male side of the world. My next will be a liddy. And just before I uh, unleash my final um favorite sporting record. I want to um, just speak momentarily about another lady who I wanted to analyze in depth, um, chose not to, but just want to briefly uh, give a little word in tonight's conversation to Nadia Comaneci. Many people may well remember the name, Nadia Comaneci, who aged just 14, uh, this Romanian gymnast uh, from the Montreal Olympics, got the first ever perfect 10 in gymnastics, right? And again, I will never claim to be a gymnastics scorer. I think like most sports fans, every Olympic cycle, we become gymnastic experts, don't we? When we watch it with such you know, admiration and respect for what these guys do, they're <laughs> athletes par-supreme. But <coughs> uh, Nadia, um, age just 14, got the first ever perfect 10. Certainly the first ever recorded at an Olympics. There were those who, who will say that there were Perfect Tens recorded at events in the 20s. Um, but again, it's not documented necessarily. Anyway, Nadia's efforts at that granddaddy of them all at the Olympics, the Perfect Ten. Uh, and it was poetry in motion. Do check her efforts out on YouTube. Nadia Comaneci. And just briefly before I get on to my next and final um, female hero from the sporting records scene. I love this because, again, it's a quirk. I love these little quirks to these great moments, these great stories. Um, The scoreboard, having never experienced a perfect 10, having almost deemed it to be impossible, was only actually configured to go up to 9.99. So they had to sort of... It was a moment where (laughs) the whole world stopped and, obviously, machine heads behind the scenes were kind of working their machinery magic to make it possible, even, for that... Magic one zero digit one zero 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 to be even displayed because the electronic machine, as I say, had only been uh, configured to nine point nine nine because again they just deemed it impossible. It had to be done. It can't be done. A human can't do this, and daddy uh, found a way. It's been done several times since, but again, it's a first, uh, a sporting record, and a memory uh, from Olympic history which will live on forever. Uh, If you can recall that moment, love to hear from you. Do tweet us at Verlum Sports. But, yeah, that moves me on now to my final uh, sporting record of the night. And we've spoken fastest. um, We've talked about longevity. Well, I'm going to analyze the Swiss miss, Martina Hingis. Again, I just used to really love her, quite frankly, in many senses of the word. But just purely speaking, from a sporting perspective, I just loved her movement and her motion. And um, again, she wasn't born in Switzerland, but became nationalised. But there was something equivalent to the greatest, most winningest tennis player of all time, um, Federer himself, in terms of their ease of movement and their grace across the courts. I just have so much admiration, appreciation for the legendary career of Martina Hingis. But of course, we're talking records here. And the Swiss Miss is, and this stands across both the male and the female game all time and remains at the moment, the the bar, the standard, the youngest ever Grand Slam winner of a Grand Slam major in tennis. OK, I want to document it, um, but she's also phenomenal at the doubles game too. In her career, she spent 209 weeks as world number one and 90 weeks as world doubles number one. So there was a period of 29 weeks where she overlapped, where she was both the number one ranked singles player on planet Earth and her and her partner, number one ranked doubles player on planet Earth. Truly astonishing. Uh, Again, it was back in the 90s where she scorched through a series of youngest ever records. And that includes the youngest ever Grand Slam winner and also the youngest ever world number one before ligament injuries in both ankles uh, again the perils of sports stars like i say she did have an elegancy of motion but the pressures the strains of the game of tennis so much um, short sharp motions on often hard courts does put immense pressure on the ligaments and again going back to the 90s we weren't quite at the zenith Of the sporting science appreciation that maybe as we now embrace that allows the likes of Federer to plough through. Plus, unlike Federer and Nadal, they may dabble in doubles occasionally, but they've been very focused in their singles career. Like I say, Martina Hingis was a spectacular world number one ranked doubles player, so she's playing individually and also in doubles, often at the same tournaments. It really is astonishing when you think of that much energy and that much uh, sporting endeavour in short bursts. It's no surprise she suffered from terrible ligament problems. That actually would force her out of the game um, in 2003, aged only 22, uh, by which time she claimed 40 singles titles. And again, remembering that she a hump uh-huh, forgive the pun doubled up in doubles at that time age twenty two back in three she'd also claimed thirty six doubles titles. She would return to the tour in two thousand and six and would actually rise up the rankings. Uh, Because obviously you can imagine in that two-year hiatus, she dropped right down into, you know, almost off the page, not even existent in the ranking status. But in 06, she managed to climb all the way back up to world ranking of number six. Now, this would earn her, and it's a phenomenal award, the Laureus World Sports Award for Comeback of the Year. It's a wonderful achievement in and of its own self, Uh, not necessarily a record, but a great award for the world's youngest ever Grand Slam winning player, that is the Swiss Miss. She retired again in 07, and this was slightly more inglorious. Um, Again, lots of medication that she was taking to recover from injuries and to prevent further injury. And she was actually found uh, to have a metabolite of cocaine present in her system and that was found at Wimbledon, as it goes, causing a two-year suspension. Um, She did return again, another comeback for the comeback queen in 2013, and will go on to claim a Grand Slam, no less, a Grand Slam for the doubles majors in 2013. She's now officially retired for good. That happened in 2017. Uh, 2005, she was voted Tennis Magazine's eighth greatest female player of the previous uh, 40 years. And in 2013, she was immortalized in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. For that organization, she's now a global ambassador and does an awful lot to spread the joy, the uh, power of tennis around our world. Tennis was eminently in the blood, the DNA of Martina Hingis. Both her parents were tennis pros and she was a true prodigy. Um, She began playing aged only two, a toddler, and then actually would enter her first tournament aged only four years of age. It's astonishing. In 1993, aged just 12, Hingis would become the youngest, again, that key word, that youngest ever player to earn a Grand Slam junior title in which she claimed the French Open. A little ironically, if you would, the French Open was the only major which eluded her as a singles star on the Adults Tour. She was, though, twice beaten in the final at Roland Garros in a singles event uh, at 97 and also again in 1999. Hingis, as I say, a true prodigy, uh, made her WTA debut aged just 14 back in 1994. And at 96, she became the youngest Grand Slam champion, uh, uh, earning the Wimbledon's doubles title, aged just 15 and nine months. I was just trying to, you know, remember the chemical equation for photosynthesis, which I can't recall off the top of my head from my GCSEs back then. Uh, 97, she became the youngest ever, undisputed world number one. So once again, that key uh, word here, youngest, it seems to be just a plethora of early talent, early promise, And she rode it to the best of her possibilities, given injury rankings. So 97, the youngest ever undisputed world number one. And she won her first singles Grand Slam title. And again, this, this pans onto the men's game. Her victory there at the Australian Open, aged just 16 years and three months, remains the youngest Grand Slam victor in the modern era of tennis. So that's not just the women's game, that's the men's game. All time in tennis, Martina Hingis is the youngest ever singles Grand Slam champ. Adding towards the fact she was also the youngest ever uh, uh, Grand Slam winner in doubles from Wimbledon, uh, which was just a mere few months before that. Um, 97 was perhaps the peak of her powers. Strange to say, because she was such a callow youth, She'd win Wimbledon that year. Uh, becoming the youngest Wimbledon champion since Lottie Dodd way back in 1887, she would also go on to claim the U.S. Open title that year. Martina would win the U.S. Open three consecutively uh, years from '97 through consecutively to 1999, and overall she claimed five majors in her singles career, and that is 22nd on the all-time list of most winningest. Women um, on the on the tour and has three. Uh, excuse me, thirteen doubles, including that uh, uh, titles, including the referenced Grand Slam, uh, which she achieved back in uh, 2013. The Grand Slam of doubles and th- uh, thirteen doubles titles in total. So a real remarkable career, not necessarily without its. Controversy certainly it was injury plagued, but again throughout that the word the word youngest kept coming to the fore. And Hingis, as I say, this isn't just localized in on the women's side of things, but in the game of tennis, the youngest ever major winner, both in the in the singles and the doubles. And they are, I think. Phenomenal statistics, phenomenal facts. I think they picked uply into our wonderful conversation on sporting records. But Jason, I guess your thoughts, memories maybe on Martina
1: Hingis. She was a bit before I I really got into tennis. So obviously her her you know breakout season was the 1997 one, which was you know absolutely ridiculous. But you know the fact that she also managed to to dominate the double sport as well is is something that not a lot of players can actually do, and uh, it's fascinating to me. You know, I've because I don't really know a lot about her. I've I felt you know almost privileged listening to you tonight to learn about her, and and her story is amazing. It's um, you know, one of the most fascinating incidents. You know, a lot of uh, credence and discussion focuses on Boris Becker but actually as you said she was even younger than Boris Becker when he was you know a, a fledgling young tennis player that ripped up the world it, it's do You know just, a quick
0: aside there Jason I'm quite pleased you brought up the name Boris Becker. It's almost um, one of those, uh, have you had the phenomenon, uh, what do they call it uh, mirror mirror syndrome
1: No I haven't heard this you have to explain it to me
0: Right, okay, I'll keep it relatively brief and I'll focus it in on the kind of sporting context. It's called Mirror Mirror Syndrome because in Cinderella, that, the word Mirror Mirror on the wall was never actually written or indeed oh. spoken. In much <laughs> the same way for you kind of, uh, you know, um, sci-fi fans out there, um, Captain Kirk never uttered the words, Beam me up Scotty. So these kind of things, there's loads of them. There's so many. Uh, It's an interesting phenomenon worth just checking out. Google up mirror mirror syndrome. Uh, But the um, reference there to Boris Becker, bringing it straight back to a sporting context, is a fascinating one because it's another mirror mirror one, Jason, because people do think, loads of people, that Becker is the youngest male uh, uh, Grand Slam winner because there's that phenomenal uh, image, isn't there, from him, uh, you know, ginger hair blazing, diving all over the court at 87 at Wimbledon and all that. But actually, the youngest male victor, still, nowhere, still not in the league of um, Hingis in terms of youngest all-time, was actually Michael Chan. Uh, when I think he won the um, Australian, I want to say. Uh, no, no, probably French, actually. But yeah, he was just 17, a year younger than Becker.
1: So yeah, yes, there we go. Yeah. A little bit
0: of mirror-mirror syndrome.
1: Yeah, Michael Chan was one of the people that we actually discussed one week as well. So it's, it's the mirror mirror syndrome in myself that I actually forgot one that I actually raised there. So now excellent for you to bring it up and, and correct me because, you know, the, these are these are things that do prevail in sport. I'm obviously going off the point there of, of Hingis for just a moment, but it's almost the uh, quite often you, you hear football or sporting cliches and you think where's that come from and is there any facts and base to it and with the Boris Becker situation I always link it to the kind of discussion point of when a commentator says oh they've just scored now and they're uh, most likely to concede but actually the data shows a completely opposite conclusion to that and it's amazing how the sport mind works because obviously in a weird way there's an interlockedness between the the sporting psyche and when one thing is believed by a few people it it starts to grow like Mm -hmm. wildfire but yeah bring it back to to martina Hingis, and uh, just bringing it back to the point as well as obviously she was uh you know residential in switzerland but it just shows you you know that that country there as well is producing some of the, the hottest talent in uh sporting history but i think I don't know if it is due to her her gender but that her story isn't talked about enough she's not revered enough because of her youth because of her age what she accomplished at such uh, you know a tender young age of 16 mm. should be in the sporting annals should be stuff for sporting legend but unfortunately it's not you know we talk about the likes of Boris Becker of Chan you know these individuals here whereas actually this woman here and i think i bring it back to somebody that we mentioned from social media at the start uh, i remember a reporter said to andy murray andy you should be so pleased that you're the the first uh, tennis star to win gold me- two gold medals at the olympics what does that feel like and andy murray turned around and said the first male and i think this is you know the the perennially overlooked nature of female sports yeah. and you know she has done something that no man no no woman has done and it's almost like a footnote in tennis history it, it mm. is not discussed enough and just on to the final point that you made that ligament injuries and in both her ankles you know really kind of cut short her career you know and and this is one of the saddest things as well about of a lot of players some of the greats you know are revered because of their longevity and sometimes some of the greatest players that we've ever seen in whatever sport whether it be football whether it be tennis athletics whatever they're almost not as revered as much because their career was shorter you know Bjorn Berg uh, a tennis player by comparison retired really early but because mm-hmm. he retired in in such a fashion, it's almost mythologised. But with other players that were were huge greats but had career-ending injuries, because their story's shorter, they haven't won as much, but maybe won more in a shorter amount of time, they're not nearly as revered. And, and again, that's maybe something to do with the, the Hingis story, but it, it just breaks my heart that you know somebody like that with such level of talent, but we see it so, so often that it's not their skill, but it's their body that kind of gives up on them. And and yeah. her 80% win rate just shows you what an amazing athlete she was when she was fully fit on her day. And, you know, for me, Tony, I'll admit it. I didn't know her story as well. I'm not the hugest tennis fan, but for me as almost an outsider to the sport, it, it shocks me that she isn't revered at all. And, uh, yeah, it it saddened me a little bit.
0: She was, for me, because again, I, it was right at the core of my era. And there was a strange kind of weird thing, because uh, a lot of people may well remember the name Anna Kornikova, who I don't actually think uh, went on to win any majors. She might have won one in the doubles or some in the doubles, but certainly nowhere near as successful as Martina Hingis. But she was kind of the poster girl of, of tennis at the time. This is kind of sort of pre... Uh, this, the Venus Williams was... In the game, Serena Williams' boom was just on the horizon, uh, but kind of it was Kournikova and Hingis doing it literally on the court, um, and because of her poster girl qualities, uh, Kournikova kind of took the media gaze, so to speak. But I don't think Martina never, uh, Hingis ever desired that; she was a bona fide a prodigy. And, you know, like I say, first uh, picked up a racket at two. First tournament, obviously not professionally, was four, you know. And then that young talent was fulfilled. It may be not have been fulfilled to its absolute richest level because, again, injury curtailed. But there can be no questions about it, what she achieved. And, again, doubling up, literally doubling up, to play the same grand slam tournament where you're already playing a game every other day, but then to do that in a doubles context the strain on the body was just too much big of a toll and it's rare i don't think it's unique but it's very very rare uh to somebody to take on that kind of a schedule but yeah it is sad um and again i want to give her massive massive praise because again we're talking sporting records and she remains like i say man woman the most or the youngest grand slam winner both at singles and doubles, all time. It's astonishing. And until that record is broken, that's the nature of records, they are there to be broken. I'm sure another prodigy will come through and sort of push it forwards. But I mean, that record has stood now since 96, 97. So it's not a small span of time. And it really is remarkable. But I think what is really telling I don't know. I can't claim to know the woman personally. I've never had the privilege of enjoying her company. But one thing that really, I think, strikes me is that she so much loves the sport of tennis. That's why she had several comebacks. And again, won tournaments, never really to the same level in the singles world, but consistent again, that Grand Slam in her second comeback year of 2013 in doubles, but again, she was inducted into the uh, Te- uh, International Tennis Hall of Fame to, um, in 2013 and two years later and remains an ambassador for that. So her whole life, literally almost from pre-birth, because my mum and dad were both tennis pros, has been immersed in the game of tennis. And that ambassadorial role, I believe, is a real reflection of a true passion the sport and so in that sense i understand the kind of emotional take and why it could well be deemed sad the injury curtailed what might have been but i don't believe that hingis would look back and see that because i think she just appreciates and continues to give back what the game has given to her That's my kind of take on things. But, yeah, I just wonder if there are any final thoughts, Jason.
1: Yes, interesting as well, because obviously her youth is going to be a long-lasting record. But also the fact that she did it in singles and doubles is such a unique record in of itself. Will it be repeated again? So in that aspect, she's almost got two very unique records that maybe the tennis world won't see. And and that is something, you know, maybe her career was cut a lot shorter than Mm -hmm. it would have been if she'd stuck to one or the other. So she's kind of booked her place in the annals of tennis history if, you know, as I mentioned, she's not mentioned enough. But the other aspect to you, Tony, is I wonder if there's that tossing up in her mind almost that you know kind of how we contextualize Usain Bolt the greatest Mm. sprinter of all time but is there going to be that question in her mind as as well as would she have won more as a singles player would she have maybe the most wins all time of Grand Sams maybe she would have got that Roland Garros if buts and maybes but if she had just I don't know if she was advised at the time but told to cut short the doubles, Mm. focus on the singles. Could we be talking about Hingis now as the greatest ever tennis star in the sense of the most wins? Is that a possibility in your mind based on just her pure talent?
0: Yeah, Jason, do you know what? It's a brilliant question and again I was very privileged. I used to um, really love watching her. and used to but she's very, very pretty too, and remains so. But uh, that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, so I, I did watch her intently, uh, again, objectively as a fan of sport, not a sports star, but a fan of sports, a man who believes that he has got a reasonably good handle on quality sports. Um, it, her game at the peak of her powers was astonishing. And again, it was that with that Federer-like um, Ease of motion and grace. She was so graceful, and she had all the shots. But whilst, of course, all things are possible, and we will never know for sure, my suspicion is this: I think fully fit, she would have gone on to win more, more slams than she achieved. Achieved five. Remember that alone is still the twenty-second highest all-time in the uh, the women's winningest chart. But the woman who's chasing the number one spot, only one off that, is the legendary Serena Williams, who we've spoken about an awful lot. And just around the corner, uh, there was already Venus on the scene, but Serena was emerging. And Serena's power, and again, sometimes it's just easy to dismiss Serena as just a power player. I mean, you know, you don't claim uh, two slams. All time without having all the shots. Serena's got a, like, she's an icon in her own right. But the power level would, I think, have been overall too much for Hingis, even if she had been focused on singles, even therefore, she had been able to uh, keep 100% in peak physical condition. I think, no questions about it, Hingis had the imagination the gift, um, the flair, and the football, uh, the tennis IQ to figure out ways to beat Serena. So I don't doubt that she would have well added to the five majors that she claimed. And it would have been lovely. Again, she got things off the running with, again, it remains the youngest. There's that word again with Hingis. Youngest, youngest ever um, junior. Um, title, the Roland Garros at French. It would have been nice if she was able to claim the French Open and therefore claim a career Grand Slam. Remember, she got the, the Grand Slam in one year in the doubles side of things. So it would have been lovely to think that she could have done that, twice beaten Finals, 97 and 99. And I don't doubt at all that she would have well added to her Hall of Five singles, um, titles, Grand Slams, if She had, A, focused on singles, B, being able to retain peak condition. I don't doubt that. However, I also believe that the level of the game that Serena's taken tennis to would have been a touch too much for Hingis. And so I think she would have won more, but I think we'll still find that it would have been Serena – Who would be keeping her out of the all-time winningest list, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I suppose as well with Serena, a bit like the comparison to Usain Bolt, you know, somebody else that we talked about. Her style is so unique and different to women's tennis that maybe Hingis wouldn't have been able to cope with that physicality. It's, It's a bit like Federer and Nadal, you know, or Federer and Djokovic, that their styles are so polar opposites in many instances that... Hingis might have been, you know, pulled back on the ability to Mm -hmm. dominate the sport because of that. And in many instances, then you you have to ask the question that maybe she was right to to kind of go and pursue this, this mad notion that a lot of people would question at the time of doing doubles and singles. But it was such a unique, fascinating record that... In that sense, it's something that you can never take away. I mean, we, we said with the, the one-hit wonders that even one Grand Slam or one F1 title or one of any kind of world championship in your sport is amazing, and you can never take that away. You'll still always be the former number one or yeah. champion in that sport. And the fact that she did it across many of the Grand Slams and at two different levels, it, yeah, it's it's a something that probably she will never, ever regret. And also, maybe we we might not see for many generations somebody to repeat that feat. It will be something that will live in the the stories of tennis for a while. So maybe even me questioning whether she would go for longevities is a silly question to ask because she's got a different record, something unique that many people, maybe nobody ever will repeat it. I don't know because, uh, as, as again, quoting Phelps, records are there to be broken and maybe somebody will come along and do it but it's it's something that won't be taken away from her she'll have been the first person to do it one of the only people to ever do it so it, it's maybe it's it's a moot question tony
0: it's a fascinating one and this has been a fascinating conversation um i want to thank you the wonderful uh, radio room listener For giving us this topic and make sure you are tuning in next Saturday, Sportcast 6 through 7, where we'll be debating, dissecting, and analyzing a sporting topic once again of your choosing, which will then be available for you in full podcast form too. Do check out the award winning Radio Verum uh, websites and find all the Radio Verum podcasts, not least of which that referenced 100th episode special. So big, we had to uh, dissect it into two. But there's also a wonderful array of uh, eclectic, diverse, uh, fantastic podcasts, not just from our perspective, from the sports side. There's great interviews, uh, great interviews with politicians that I know the Machine McKenna is instrumental at providing. There's um, great live music. Obviously, we provide you all the what's on in and around St. Albans information. Just quite frankly, do yourself a favor. Go to the award winning Radio Verdon website. Click the podcast tab. Enjoy that. Find some fun there. It's been really fun, as always, to uh, consider a sporting topic of your choosing this week. I've enjoyed going through some of the winningest, some of the fastest, some of the youngest, all-time sporting records. Naturally, we've missed some. And I know you've got your own. I can hear. I can imagine you furrowing your brows saying, how could you not talk about this? How could you miss this one? Well, please, it's your show, every bit as much as it is ours. So if you're feeling that right now, tweet us at verulam sport email us to sport at radioverulam.com and keep involved but for now thank you for enjoying this podcast thank you again for the topic of debate i'd like to thank as always the returning machine jason mckenna for his wonderful input and for now keep well keep safe keep listening all the best